right, we are on part three of our series on pursuing God. And if you just take a glimpse at the outline, you'll see there's a lot of verses there and not a lot of notes. And it's because I want to preach a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes I get anchored to those notes and I, I just get stuck. I feel like I'm a little bit in a rut. So sometimes I just got to let it, let it loose a little bit. So it's organized, but uh, we'll see what happens. Anyway, I just wanted to preach a little bit on this, these thoughts. I, the more I approach this topic of seeking God, of pursuing the Lord, of spiritual hunger, personal revival, corporate revival, my heart always begins to stir. It's something that uh, I've carried for a long, long time. I can remember being a, a young man, 1994, and hearing stories of revival that was taking place. I remember, uh, first I remember, you know, before there was ever any kind of uh, renewal or awakening happening locally or in the States or Toronto, any of that stuff, I re just remember this preacher coming uh, to our church and he just told stories of revivals. And he told about uh, old ministers and, and, and names like Smith Wigglesworth and, and you know, Frank Bartleman and, and William Seymour and, and, and Charles Finney and, and all these different ones and George Whitfield and John Wesley and, and, and Evan Roberts and, and all these stories of these historic revivals where the power of God would hit a place, a city, and you know, thousands upon thousands would be converted to Jesus. I remember the first time I ever uh, started studying about revival, I read this book uh, called God's Generals. And if you've never read it, I'd encourage you to read it. It's a book by a guy uh, by the name of Roberts Lairdon called God's Generals. And what does he do? He goes through all the stories of these historic uh, preachers that had move, you know, m massive moves of the spirit in their ministries. And I remember at that time, uh, I was resonating with the story of this one guy named Evan Roberts, who was the key figure in the Welsh revival, which took place in 1904. And, and Evan Roberts was uh, 26 years old. And I remember when I read the book, I was 26 years old. <laughs> you know, it's, it's good for that year. You're like, I'm the next Evan Roberts. And the next year, you got to be somebody that's 27 years old. But that, I remember reading that and it just, it just really penetrated my heart because this young man had gone to Bible college. Now just hear this story. He was so gripped with a burden for revival, he would sit in his Bible classes and he would literally fall, there, there was times where he fell out of his chair in the classroom, groaning and travailing for revival. The, you know, the guys up there trying to just teach a Bible message and this guy's on the floor. Ah! Well, they, you know, they said, hey, we, we can't do this. And so they, they actually sent him to the doctor. And like, what's wrong with him? Why is he all gripped like that and crying and falling out of his chair, praying like this? And the doctor uh, diagnosed him with religious mania. <laughs> Glory. And they sent him home from Bible school. They said, we don't know what to do with this guy. He's got religious mania. <laughs> and, uh, and so he goes home and he's fired up, he's passionate, 
And he asks his pastor, he says, let me preach. Let me preach just once. And the pastor's looking at him. He's like, I don't, I'm not sure about you, uh, religious mania guy. Uh, and, and he goes, you just got to let me preach just one time. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what. If you can get some of the young people to come out, you can do an, a special evening service. And he does this one evening service with 18 young people and he begins to share his burden from the Lord and it just ignites those young people. And uh, the thing begins to spread and spread and spread until within two years time, they do a census in Wales. And the census was about uh, what's your religious conviction or religious affiliation. And in two years, 100% of the nation said they were born again Christians. The revival was so, I mean, it permeated so much that, and so many people got so radically saved that uh, there were testimonies that came from the coal mines because so much of the, the economy was on coal that these coal miners, they got radically born again. And when they did, they were, they had been such like, you know, just rough around the edges kind of, kind of people. They, they were cussing so much that they actually trained their horses to, to respond to curse words. So they all get born again. And they're like, that's perverse. We're not gonna do that anymore. And they actually had to retrain the horses. It's true. This is in history. They actually had to go through and retrain, comprehensively retrain the horses in the coal mines because they all got born again. The policemen and the jails talk about seasons. It's recorded in history. They talk about seasons where they didn't have anybody in jail and they had no like, situations that they were being called on because revival had hit the whole place. It's just powerful. I, my favorite story of the Welsh revival is the editor of a giant newspaper, the biggest publication in... in, in uh, in Great Britain and, and, and really for the United Kingdom is this, this newspaper called the Pall Mall Gazette. And the editor had heard these stories of this revival and he, uh, <clears throat> so he's gonna go and he's gonna, he's gonna do like an editorial on the revival and he's gonna mock it. His plan was to make fun of it. And so he, uh, he goes there and he, and he, he gets off a train in, in Luffer, Wales, which is where the, the epicenter of the revival was, and he gets off the train, he says, he grabs somebody on the street, he says, I'm, try, I'm looking for the such and such church where the, where the revival is, I wanna hear Evan Roberts. And the guy gives him directions, and the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette, <laughs> he records it this way, when, they, when he got directions to the revival, the guy says, okay, walk down to the end of the street, turn left, and then you'll feel it. And you'll know where to go after that. You'll feel it. That's what I want. I want a revival that you can feel out in the public where power has descended and everybody around knows something is up. And so he goes on and he writes his editorial and uh, he starts the editorial with this. People wanna know what I think about the revival. The question isn't, what do I think about the revival? The question is, what does the revival think about me? And he talks about how God was so evident and so in manifestation in Wales 
that he felt like he was being investigated by the holy hand of God. Beloved, when we're talking about pursuing God, when we're talking about revival, when we're talking about awakening, we're not talking about three or four good meetings and a plus one presence and plus two crowd. We're talking about something that permeates the society that really changes the entire landscape of the culture in the church and outside of the church where awakening explodes and the masses are being radically converted and literally everybody is brought to a place where you have to make a decision one way or another with Jesus. It's not, is he real? It's what will you do with him? What are you gonna do about Jesus? So we're, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's far more expansive than a, a good meeting or two. Well, to, to see revival, there is this thing called pursuing God, seeking the Lord while he may be found, which is the word I felt like the Lord, the scripture, Isaiah 55, six, that the Lord gave me at the top of the year. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And it's, it's incumbent upon the people of God to engage in calling on the Lord and seeking the Lord while he may be found. And I was reading, I read through this week every verse in the Bible that said, seek, seeks, or seeking, every one. And, uh, and I was um, actually surprised at how many verses say, seek, seek the Lord, Se- you know, seek his face, uh, all sorts of different expressions of that. There's I mean, maybe a hundred verses that talk about pursuing God, the, the, the clear admonition of scripture across the whole biblical narrative is that the people of God are supposed to be pursuing God. And what became so tender to me, and we'll get there at the end of the message, but is that when the people of God pursue God, God then flips the script and he begins to pursue them. Oh yes is right. That's where we wanna live. We want to live where our seeking has turned into us being pursued. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. All right, let's just look at the outline. So we're talking about pursuing God. We're talking about seeking God. What does it look like? Well, what I did was I put together three familiar scriptures that I'm sure you've heard preached on before. And my goal isn't to give you a treatise on these. My goal is to read a menu to you. In fact, that's what I've provided for you in this outline is a menu of verses that you can take into your study time this week and allow these verses to stand over you and go deep into your heart and allow it to provoke something in your soul. Three very familiar verses. Let's read them all together and let's just allow the words to stand over us And what I actually did with this outline, you can see that A, B, C, D right there. I just did that for the people that need a list. God bless y'all that need lists. There it is for you. I love you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. There's your list. (laughs) It's pretty weak. I mean, it's great content, but I mean, it's four points. Anyway, you got it. There it is. There's your list. Second Corinthians seven, let's look at it. You know it, but let's just allow it to stand over us again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven 
and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I remember my very first study of revival. It was 1993. And I remember having this thing in my mind. I'm a 23-year-old young man, hungry for God, wanting to see revival. And in my mind, I was just full of self-righteousness. And in my mind thinking, if those sinners out there would just turn to God, if they would just turn to God, we'd have revival. If all those people out there that are doing all that wickedness would just turn, we'd have revival. And then I remember reading 2 Chronicles 7. Maybe it was the first time I read it. I mean, I hadn't been saved very long at that time. Maybe it's the first time I read it and I realized God's address as it, rela- as it relates to calling people to seek him is almost never sinners. It's always his own people. That the issue when it comes to God moving in power isn't all them out there, it's all us in here. And, and so often the church kind of gets puffed up in self-righteousness. Oh, they just all need to do better. And actually what the, the clear address of scripture is our own hearts. And I love to say it this way, God's worldview as it relates to you is that the number one thing that he's interested in is your heart. That's what he's after. He's after your heart to conquer it completely. He doesn't want your heart shared with anything else. He doesn't want any other affection to hold your heart. He wants your heart more than he wants anything else. He is serious about that and he is staring at you right now over that issue. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ear is attentive to their prayer. He is looking and listening and he's staring at his church, at his people, and he's saying, I want all of you. So when we see this in 2 Chronicles 7, we see this, if my people who are called by my name, it's, it's so clear, it couldn't be any clearer. He's talking about the people of God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a very familiar revival verse. I would bet most of you have heard this verse before. Let me ask you a question. Does our land need healing? Our land for sure needs healing. We need God in America again, don't we? Well, I will tell you something. Though we have a very important inauguration this week and though I, I'm gripped over it and praying for it and really believing that, that God's gonna just release grace and coverage over that thing, I think there's still some, some you know, challenging things that this administration is gonna have to deal with and there's so much rhetoric that's negative. The point of that is this. Our next president is not the answer to the healing of America. And I, and I appreciate the, the campaign slogan and, and, and whatever positive things that he, he's trying to accomplish, make America great again. But I, I would tell you something, it's not really about making America great again, it's about God being great in America again. That's what we have to have. And here's the point. The point is you can't elect an official that will make that happen. Even if you have a righteous full-blown, if you had the most fiery believer as the president, that still doesn't make America great again. It still doesn't make God great in America again. It requires my people, the people of God, to give their hearts to the Lord in a a fully abandoned way, 
to seek the face of God, to cry out, to turn from wickedness and turn to the Lord. Evan Roberts had these, these premises that he actually based that whole revival on. And, and, and they're very, very simple. But one of the key ones was get rid of any doubtful things. Just as simple as that. Get rid of any doubtful things. What he meant was anything that you're doing in your life, anything that, that, you're, that you're allowing in your life that's questionable, before God, just get rid of it. His point was just, just get rid of anything that could be in any way influencing you away from the heart of God. And as people begin to do that, as they begin to turn away from stuff that was doubtful in their lives and turn toward the Lord, the Lord began to answer that with fire. If my people, that's a critical thought. What does pursuing God look like? Well, first it's the people of God. Here's the list. The list is always the same. No matter what passage I use, the list is always the same. Like, it's not rocket science. The list is always the same list. It's humility, it's prayer, it's repentance, and it's righteous action. Those are the key things when it means to seek God. It's seeking him in those ways. We seek God by humbling ourselves before God. One of the hardest things for the church to do is admit she's in need. We're really religiously educated, but we're not very spiritually obedient. We're really religiously educated, but we're not very spiritually obedient. And, and because of that, we don't realize there's actually a distance between what we know and what we live. And that chasm between what we know and how we act, therein is our compromise. Am I making sense? Amen. Humility is the first step where I look into the word of God. I look at God. I look at his nature. I look at the truth of scripture. I see his affections and desire for me. And I also see his, his directives and his commands toward me for us as a people. And I say, God, is my life matching up with what the Bible says I'm to look like and to live like? and what it says I can have. And humility, just the simplest thought, you just go, I, I need you, I, I need you. I, I need you to help me, God. I need others around me that will speak courage into me and call me to account and encourage me when I'm down. And I need you, God, I need your grace to enable me to walk this thing out. I need you. Humility is so critically important. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, humble themselves, there's healing at the end of humility. Let's read the Hosea verse. You've heard it. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Oh, I love that phrase. Till he rains righteousness. You know what a revival that people can feel in the public is? It's God raining down 
righteousness. Oh, I want to, I mean, just one time in my life, I want to live in a city where it's raining righteousness. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, just there's a shower going on outside and everybody knows it and you can't help but get wet. Everybody's feeling this. (laughs) I want to be in that place. There's this phrase, fallowed ground. Fallow ground. You know, fallow ground is hardened ground. It, it's ground that has, has really gone into a state of, of decay. And, 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 and uh, what is it like when a, when a tree gets, gets like rock hard? What's that phrase, that term? Petrified. There's a petrified state that happens to the ground so it can't produce anymore. It's dead. It's being religiously educated and not being spiritually obedient. The truth of the word is something you ascribe to. You go, yeah, that's real, that's true. And then the activity of your life, it's kind of blasé. That's fallowed ground. If you wanna know what fallowed ground is, is when truth hits your head, you agree to it, and the actuality of it is distant in your life, and it just wears off. Like, I mean, almost by the time you walk out the door. Like, well, that was really a good word. And by the time you've hit Collins Hill Road, you're like, well, back to normal. That's fallow ground. Let me tell you something. The world doesn't have fallow ground. They're unsaved. They've just got weeds and thorns and sin. You know what that's like. That's what you used to be. The church has fallow ground. We've heard the truth We've been convicted of the truth. Sometimes we've moved toward the truth. Sometimes we've stiff-armed the Lord. And in that, that hardening of the soil of our heart happens. When there's that distance between understanding and obedience, that hardening happens. And the ground of our heart, the soil of our soul, it gets hardened. It gets fallowed. God says, in seeking me, you have to break that hardening over the heart. You have to break it up. And you go, what do I need to do? Half of it is just being humble enough to admit that you got areas of fallowness in your own soul. I I, I don't know how, how you do it, but I will sit before the Lord and I will remember times when, the, I mean, just the lightest little zephyr of the presence of God would float through the room. Just the, you know what I mean? Just a little bit of just whoosh, a little wisp of his presence, and it would just, oh, it would touch me. And I go, God, why, why don't I feel that right now? What's going on in there? And, and he goes, there's some areas that are fallowed, that have gotten hardened. I, you know, I, I want to be one that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit, which is one of Evan Roberts' Four things. The last one was obey the Holy Spirit no matter what. <laughs> I want to live there, but if there's this thing of fallowedness coming over your heart, if there's this high spiritual education that lacks obedience, I guarantee you there's a fallowedness that's set in on portions of your heart. You got to break that stuff up. How do you break it up? He gives us the same ingredients. You sow righteousness. There's the righteous actions. You, You seek the Lord. That's the humility and the prayer. You break that thing up by getting before the Lord and going, God, I'm not okay with my heart being hardened in any way. See, if if you're willing to go there, God is willing to meet you. 
He will start chiseling that stuff off your heart. He'll start breaking it off. He'll start bringing you back to a place of tenderness. He'll start bringing you back to a sensitivity. It's really not rocket science. It's really just a matter of obedience and action. Getting before the Lord and allowing the Lord to deal with your heart in a deep way. You humble yourself, you pray, you repent of doubtful things, and then you get up from that place and you replace unrighteous or frivolous actions with righteous actions, righteous activity. Whether it's just loving some people, blessing people, sharing your faith, fasting, praying, in study of the word, going after God. That's, that, I mean, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about seeking God. Look at Joel 2. Let's look at that one again. I love these verses. I love reading these verses because when I read these verses, all of those thoughts begin to churn up over again in me. I get convicted all over again, kind of like how y'all are feeling right now. And it, it brings me to that place of rawness before the Lord. Sometimes we're too polished. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we're just too polished. We just look too good. We just got everything in order. Our box is just perfect. Everything looks just tidy. Sometimes we're so tidy as Christians that we don't have any impact on the world around us. We've got all our I's dotted, all our T's crossed, but no power. I, I would rather be raw and ripped open before God and have an impact in the world around me than just look good and have my box nice and neat. Look at Joel 2. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. With all your heart, turn to me. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. There those things are again. There's the prayer, there's the repentance, there's the turning, there's the righteous actions. With all the heart implies that you're gonna be acting differently. But this is an interesting point. The theme of seeking God is always accompanied by the theme of turning or returning. Whenever you read about seeking God in the Bible, there's almost always somewhere in that passage an additional thought, and it's turn to me, the repentance piece, or the return to me. And the return to me is the one that I've been talking about the last couple of weeks a bit and, and even this morning, because it's the remembrance it's the remembrance of those days of encounter. It's the remembrance of those days of tenderness. It's the remembrance of those days of sweet devotion when the word of God was alive, those times of sweet prayer before the Lord. And it's recognizing those times and then turning your life back to the same style of pursuit you had in those days. So often, Seeking and pursuing has along with it turning slash returning. And beloved, I would just encourage you, if you haven't really done it this month, do it. Take an hour, just even an hour, 
and think through the times of visitation in your life. If you're an older saint and you've been in this thing a long time, remember when you got saved. Remember when you had that encounter as a, as a teenager or, or a college student or a, a young man or a young woman, when God encountered you. Remember those times of tenderness. Remember those times when you, when you repented of stuff and things shifted in your life and you felt the sweet conviction of the Lord. I wanna tell you something. Conviction is not a bad word. Conviction is awesome because it means God's helping you. It means he's not gonna leave you like you are. He's committed to you. He's committed to seeing you through. He's committed to you becoming conformed to the image of his son. He convicts you because he loves you to help you. Now, the enemy likes to piggyback and he likes to try to condemn when God convicts. And the way that you know the difference is this, when it's conviction, it's clean and it's pure and you see a way out. When it's condemnation, it's shame and it's perverse and it, it really, condemnation always ends with, you'll never make it. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know the difference? You ever had that voice? You're so bad. You did this. You're, you should be ashamed of yourself. You'll never amount to anything. Look at you. That's condemnation. The father doesn't speak to his kids that way. It doesn't matter if your natural dad spoke to you that way. Our father does not speak to us that way. He doesn't look at you and say, you're a failure. You'll never make it. You'll never amount to anything. That's false. That's condemnation. That's the voice of the enemy. Conviction. He goes, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I love you. This area is a problem. This area is creating a problem between you and I. I don't want it to create a problem. I don't want it in the way. I want it out of the way so you and I can be as close as, as I belong to be with you. And he gives you the picture of what it looks like to be free. See, there's a future in conviction and repentance. There's no future in condemnation and shame. Does that make it clear? So you ask the Holy Spirit, you go, God, show me my heart, convict me, release conviction on my soul. Let me see areas that are causing me to be distant from you. And the Lord will answer with kindness. This is what pursuing God looks like. It's taking those times, getting away, shutting things out, getting quiet, remembering the days of encounter you've had before, remembering the days of tenderness you've had before, remembering the times that you've had life in God before, and then asking the Holy Spirit to speak to your own heart and show you areas where there's been fallowed ground or areas where there's been compromise and those things that need to change. And God helps us. You know, most of the time, People, when they start thinking about stuff they need to change, they, they will try to forego asking the Lord. Well, I know I've got issues. I got my five issues, I know. And they go, I, I know my problems. And it's like, most of the time, whatever your five or 10 problems are in your mind, they're not the problem at all. And I, I feel like we go, God, I, I'm so sorry. These five things, I'm so sorry. I don't, I don't be like that anymore. God, please forgive me, God, I'm so sorry. He's going, I'm not even... 
I'm not even thinking about those five things right now. I'm actually thinking about this other thing. Those five things aren't even real. Those are the voice of the enemy. Now, there are a thousand things that we can improve. I'm only talking to you about one. Let's work through this one. Because there's this unsanctified self-introspection that people get into that lends towards condemnation. And what happens is is they try to circumvent God speaking to their heart in the place of prayer by just coming up with their own self-help list. Guess what? Your self-help list won't help you. It won't. You need the Holy Spirit's conviction on your soul to show you the things that God's interested in shifting and changing in you. There it is, humility, prayer, repentance, righteous action. What does pursuing God look like? It's not rocket science. It really starts with humbling ourselves and just really setting our face toward the Lord and crying out in prayer, turning away from anything that's doubtful. And then when we get up from that place, replacing those activities with righteous activities. All right. Now I gave you a list here in Roman numeral two, again, thinking about the people that love lists. What do we pursue in the Lord? As I said, I read through every verse that said seek, seeks or seeking. And it was interesting to me to find that there's an array of things that the Bible kind of commissions us to pursue in God. There's a variety of things. Now, none of these will be like, oh, wow, we're supposed to seek that. It won't won't shock you. But what I wanna do is actually give it to you as a menu and invite you to take these verses this week, go back and look at the scripture yourself and then get in the scripture and allow these things to stand over your heart and, and, and inform you and encounter you. So firstly, what do we pursue in the Lord? A, the face of God. Now, we all know this. Seek my face. We just read the second Chronicles 7. We know the Psalm 27, 8. I've mentioned it the last couple of weeks. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. We, we, we know this phrase, but we don't know what the phrase means. <laughs> We're funny little people. Christians do this all the time. We have little Christian phrases that we use all the time, but we don't have a clue what it's talking about. I'm going up to Zion. It's a higher place. Awesome. What's that mean? I don't know, but I'm going there. I'm seeking the face of God. I mean, does it mean like you're just going to like grab him by the cheeks? And... Uh, that's probably not a bad picture. My daughter does that. And I think this is how I need to do with the Lord. I need to grab him. But the face of God is a specific phrase that means much more than just sort of the image you would see if you were looking at God. The face of God is the countenance of God that holds the glory of God. Seeking the face of God is, it's really a way to say seeking the depths of God. It's not a surface thing, it's all of who he is. Remember Moses, show me your glory, and the Lord said, you can't see my face. See, Moses was asking for all of God. And God says, everything that you need to know about me, it, will, it shines from my countenance. So when, when the scripture, it commissions us to seek his face, it's telling us, yes, the face of God, the beauty of God, what's coming off of him, the glory that's coming off of him, but it's also telling us the depth of God, the glory of who he is, what's in his heart even. 
What's he like? The face of God. I, I, you know, I found this verse. I'm sure I've read it before, but man, it just, I loved it. First Chronicles 16, 11. It's, it's interesting because it's just slid in there while the, the chronicler is actually quoting a psalm, he actually inserts this line that's not actually exactly in the original psalm. And the, the line is, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Oh, I love that. Seek his face forevermore. That's what the people of God are supposed to be like. Seeking God's face forevermore. There's something about that that just gives an encouragement to me. I go, yes, that's how I want to live. Seeking your face. B, what do we pursue? The kingdom of God. You know this one, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. The thing that's interesting about that is most of us wouldn't have a very good working definition of the kingdom. But ultimately, the ultimate idea is the rule and the reign of Jesus over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and everything that that rule and reign implies. The kingdom of God being released in our lives and throughout the earth. Seek the coming of the kingdom. Seek the manifestation of the kingdom. Live as citizens of another age. That's the idea. Live your life pointed toward another kingdom. Not this earthly place, but the heavenly one, the kingdom of God that's to be released all over the globe. See, we seek the righteousness of God. It's right there in Matthew 6, 33. It's the Matthew 5, 6 in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, that hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I, I just wanna comment on that. So often, people use this verse. They say, I'm hungry for God. I'm hungry for God. And they, they quote Matthew 5, 6. And, and what they're saying is, I want an encounter with God. They want, they want power to hit them, which I appreciate. I'm all for power touching people. I, I love that. But this is a little bit different. In fact, it's a lot a bit different. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is about knowing what he's like and what he likes and hungering and thirsting to be like him. Do you see how that's a little bit different than sort of just getting, you know, blasted by somebody laying hands on you? This is about the impartation of the nature of God in your life. I wanna live like you. I wanna look like you. I wanna talk like you. I wanna act like you. I wanna love like you love. I want your righteousness on my life. And those that hunger for that, guess what? They shall be filled. We're to seek this, beloved. The presence of God. There's Psalm 27, four, you know that one. The word of God, we're supposed to seek the word of God. Look at uh, Ezra 7.10, I love this one. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach uh, statutes and ordinances in Israel. Notice it, He he sought the law of the Lord, he sought the word of God and he sought to do it and to instruct others in it. I love that verse. That's what I wanna be like. I wanna seek God in the word. I wanna know his word and I wanna not just know it, I wanna do it. I I wanna gulf that, you know, bridge that gulf between understanding and obedience in my soul 
And then I wanna call others to it. I wanna live like that. Seeking the word, the riches of the word, knowing God's desires, knowing the word, doing it and teaching others. And then F, we, we alluded to this uh, last week or the week before. We seek the knowledge of God. I just wanted to again put this before you. Let's just read that verse. Proverbs 2, verse 3. If you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you'll find the knowledge of God. The inexhaustible knowledge of God, the infinite knowledge of God. We're to live our lives pursuing that. All right, Roman numeral three. I'm gonna land with this. And this is actually the most tender part of what I wanna share this morning. Trying to just prick our hearts with a little bit of what it looks like to pursue God. Different things we're supposed to seek out in God. But this is the point that actually, when you get your mind around it, the tenderness of God just, it begins, for me, it begins to work my heart in a, in, a, in a deep way. And it's the thing I alluded to before, that God actually seeks those who seek him. God actually seeks those who seek him. God seeks those who seek him. I want to be sought after by God. Have you ever, I, I'm thinking of a couple people in my mind right now and it's like crazy God stuff is happening to them all the time. Do you, do you know people like that? Like, man, just wild things are going on. Like, I mean, crazy favor, you know, they walk in and, you know, the guy, you know, go to the tire store and the guy just goes, we're going to pay for your tires. I mean, just favor things and, and then signs and, and you know, healings happen and, and then they get counted in dreams. And it's like, it's like God is right on their heels everywhere they go. And you're like, man, I, I want a lot of that. Like whatever that little bonus is that he's getting, I'd like that. It's like God's right there with him. Do you know the Bible actually tells us that he's with us all the time? But there's this thing about when we pursue him, and this is what gets me. You're talking about the uncreated God. When we pursue the uncreated God, something is touched in his heart that causes him to no longer sort of sit just ruling. He actually, in my mind's eye, I picture it this way, steps off the throne and begins to follow you begins to chase you down, begins to show up in the most crazy places. But, but the, the point about it is that my attempt to seek him is so valued by him that it moves his heart that he would turn around and come after me. I, I remember hearing this, uh, this uh, example years ago and it's, such, it's so the right example. And, and we talked last week about how God loves to play hide and go seek. And, and that's not my favorite game, but it's his favorite game. But he's got a second favorite game. It's called Chase. See, because in hide and go seek, you know, you're always looking for the, for the one that's, that's hidden. 
but with God, as we're pursuing him and we're looking for the one that's hidden, there's this time when he changes the game from hide and go seek to chase. And if any of you have ever had kids and you've ever played hide and go seek with your kid, and I talked about it last week, how I will hide and my daughter can't find me for anything, but there is an, an eruption of glee in her when I come out and she actually gets to find me. There's an explosion, right? That's like us when we find God. We go, oh, praise God. I actually feel your presence. Yes. But if I want to take it up a notch with my daughter, and there's that little scream, that little shrill scream of excitement she does. All I have to do is come out, ah, and she goes, ah, and then I go, ah, and I run at her, and she knows immediately she's got to run. Because no longer am I the pursued, I'm the pursuer. And that's how it is with God. There's something that happens when people will seek God, when they'll just set their face to go after God, there's some point in the game where he, he hops out and he just changes the name of the game. It's no longer hide and go seek, it's chase. He seeks those who seek him. And the point that just gets me is that broken down you and me and our little weak selves, if we'll actually pursue the uncreated God, this one who is omnipotent, who, who is expansive in wonder and marvel, he's transcendent in nature. If we will actually seek him, there's a point in the pursuit where he will flip the script and now he pursues us. That one will pursue us. He'll pursue you. You don't have to have any special talents. You don't have to be anybody. You can be completely broken down. And you can get the heart of heaven so much that God will come after you. So I think, I think about a couple times in my life when we were, we would go after God and that happened and all of a sudden he's, God's coming after us and he's coming at us in way more than we can handle. I, uh, I've told the story before, but I just wanna say it again. I remember being a youth pastor and all I, all I knew to do was teach our youth group how to go after God. That's all I knew to do. And uh, we would have these prayer meetings. I had these teenagers over to my house. I'd have 40, 50, 60 teenagers all crammed in my basement. And, we, I, and I didn't really know much. I just taught them to cry out. I, was, I got a few cry out verses. So well, there, here's some, we can do these. And I taught them to shout and cry out to God. There's probably a little bit of striving in there, just a little bit at least. But there was an authentic thing in there too. And we would cry out to God for hours. And they'd be sweating I'd be sweating. I remember this one time we did this prayer meeting in my basement and it was so hot, we could, the air conditioner wouldn't keep up with us. So we opened the windows and I had one of the girls in, a, in my youth group and she was standing at the window trying to get as much air on her as possible. She's going, God, I need 
need you. God, she's screaming at the top of her lungs out my window. And I, rem- and there's, I mean, there's 60 teenagers crammed in a basement. We're like this, everybody's sweating. And she's, at, she's the welcoming party, right? She's at the, at the window. And I, and I look at her, I'm like, oh, there's gonna be some neighbors that hear that. And I look around her and there's my Jewish neighbor in, in her driveway like, I just, at that point you just go, well, hopefully the Lord will fix that something. <laughs> but I remember those guys, they, they were so, I mean, teenagers, for all the goofiness that teenagers do, you get them fired up about something and they're second to none in passion, second to none in zeal, right? And, and there's this group, in our, this subgroup in our youth group that just got a hold of pursuing God and they would come together a couple times a week crying out to God, asking God to move in power, asking God to move in revival. And I remember when, this, when the thing flipped and all of a sudden, God was coming after us and power hit our place and it was in the parking lot. And the testimonies would come in of people driving up in the parking lot and falling out of their car and unable to move because the power of God had hit them in the parking lot. And they, you know, they walk in the room and fall down under the power of God. Nobody, not talking about people touching people. I'm talking about God pursuing us and hundreds getting born again. I remember testimonies, several, several testimonies of people who just walk through the meeting and whatever they had in their body that was sick, they just, like we had ushers that would come and count the number of people in the meeting. Walk, I remember this one usher's wife, she walks through the meeting, counts the number of people in the room and leaves. And on the way out, her skin disease is completely cleared up. It's been a lifelong thing, just gone. The presence of God in manifestation. And I just remember hundreds and hundreds coming to Jesus. But I remember the power of God being so poured out I would be shaking, physically shaking under this, this sense of his presence. And there would be so many nights I would go to bed, my wife can attest to this, I would go to bed and try to go to sleep. It'd be 12, 12.30, and I would be sitting in my bed shaking under the power of God for two and three hours, just try, trying to sleep. But there was just such a, an electrical life of God flowing through. You have those moments where things shift. But the one you're pursuing, he becomes the pursuer. And then when that is happening, that's when you start getting into the verses, all things are possible to them that believe. Most of the time, God is just trying to get us to seek him so we can actually get to that place of all things are possible. Because when God takes the field, it doesn't matter who preaches. It doesn't matter who leads worship. My dog could lead worship and she's not very good at it. <laughs> and the room would be filled with glory. I, I remember so often we would come together and just the first strum of the instrument and woof, the presence of God would fill the place. It's that moment when the pursued becomes the pursuer and everything changes. Let's just land with these verses. Psalm 53, verse two, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Are there any who understand? 
Understand what? Understand that this is what life is about. This is what this existence is about. It's about seeking God and living in the light of his countenance, living in the life of God, in the presence of God. Are there any who seek God? John 4, 23, look at this. Jesus talking to the woman at the well, you know the verse. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. But this is the phrase, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. There's something so tender to me about the idea that the eternal Father is looking for people. That's so crazy. He doesn't need anything. You're talking about the one that has to humble himself to even look at his creation, but the entire time he's looking for people to love him the way he loves them. Second Chronicles 16, I love this one. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him, the New American Center says, whose heart is completely his. He's, I'm just looking for that man or that woman whose heart is fully mine so I can show off in their life. I wanna show off, I wanna show myself strong on your behalf. If your heart's fully mine, that's what the Lord say, I'm just looking for that one that's fully given over to me so I can break into human affairs and show the world what I'm like through that one. Jeremiah 29, 13, love it. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And just last thought, this Psalm 9, just gripped me this week and I just wanna share it. Verse nine, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. Worship team, you can come on. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. But look at this. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. The knowing of the name of God is a product of pursuing God. And when he says, those who know you will trust you, he's talking about in a time of trouble. When pressure comes and things get difficult and everything is going haywire, if you know God, you know his name, you know his nature, you will trust him in that time. People wonder, what are we gonna do when everything goes crazy and everything is difficult? If you know God, you'll, you'll naturally trust him because that's the product of a heart that's pursued God. You know him, you know he's trustworthy, you know he's faithful, you will trust him. But that last phrase, when it just says, you, Lord, You've never forsaken those who seek you. I felt strongly just as I was reading this verse that there's just people that feel like I've been pursuing God, I've been pursuing him, I've been pursuing him, but he's not answering. And I would just tell you, he's never forsaken anyone who's pursued him. Though the promises may feel like they're delayed, he's never forsaken those who pursue him. There's a moment when the, flip, when the script flips and he begins to pursue you. And oh, beloved, that we would be that kind of people. We would be that kind of people. 
and pursue him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We live under these promises that God will indeed answer those who seek him, that if we seek him, we'll find him and we search for him with all of our hearts. Amen.